Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Welcome to episode four of Tax Tech and Other Stuff. Uh, really excited today. Another external guest, second one in a row. We're doing well, we're on a roll. Um, with me today is Jonathan Artis. John Artis is somebody that I've worked with for uh, quite a few years now. Um, but rather than me introduce myself, why don't you go ahead, uh, John? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Russell. Uh, yes, so my name is Jonathan Artis. Uh, I'm a client director at a software company called Softwire. And uh, and how long have you been there and what, what do you kind of do? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, I have been at Softwire for coming up for 10 years now. Uh, before that, my background is uh, accounting and finance technology. Uh, so I started my career at Deloitte about ooh, 16 years ago now, um, originally trained as an accountant, spent a bit of time in tax technology, actually writing code on some of their sort of tax technology solutions. And then, uh, yeah, moved to Softwire about 10 years ago really just to kind of uh, focus a bit more on the craft of writing software and to do it in a few different industries. Nice, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about tax because, yes, um, you go back in the world of tax technology even longer than me, um, which is always always a good thing. Um, in terms of software, tell us a bit more about the business. Um, you know, who do you work with? How big's the business? What's your customer base? All those kind of good things. Yeah, absolutely. So we were founded in the year 2000. Uh, we've grown fairly organically since the original three founders, and we're up to about 350 people now. Nice. Um, we're based in Kentish Town in North London, uh, just north of the trendy parts of Camden, um, but we we also now have offices in Cambridge, just down the road from your lovely podcast studio, <laughs> um, and also in Manchester and Bucharest as well. So we've kind of grown fairly organically as a business. Um, we are very sector agnostic, and actually that's one of my favourite things about working here. So we work with everything from sort of government through to private and third sector. Um, I do a lot of my work in the financial services industry still, so working nice. with large insurers like RSA and Zurich, um, but also with a whole spectrum of clients in energy and utilities, and also so sort of third sector and public sector. So I do a lot of work with um, Anthony Nolan, who are a blood cancer charity, uh, which is really fascinating. Uh, And also more recently with uh, Moorfields Eye Hospital and Google Health as well. Nice. Yeah, you've got some very cool clients on your list. I remember we were chatting about um, the work you're doing there. Um, We might touch on that uh, in a little bit. But I guess what does your what is a kind of typical day look like for you? What do you do day to day? Or is there no two days are the same? I mean, no two days are the same. And this is a very atypical day uh, itself. But um, broadly speaking, I've got two functions. So I am fortunate enough to have a team of about 50 uh, really bright and enthusiastic software engineers who are very much at the forefront of their craft and are, you know, frankly, almost a handful because they (laughs) are bright and buzzing and have lots of ideas. Um, About half my job is finding interesting problems for them to solve. So I spend quite a lot of time on the road talking to clients about their problems, um, helping to kind of have early conversations, shape opportunities and kind of basically establish if people have problems that would be a good fit for us to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's about half the time. The other half of the time then is kind of working with my team, sort of mentoring them, helping make sure that then once we found an interesting problem that we solve it really, really well and that we deliver on all the promises that we've made. And if there are roadblocks, if there are bumps in the road, if things go a little bit wrong helping to kind of straighten things out and sort of coach and mentor the teams as well so it's it's kind of a 50 50 split between those two aspects so would you say you're a little bit different to you know obviously there are lots of you know software engineering development outsource type businesses um if anything my linkedin uh, inbox is full of people saying would you like some engineers that's a pretty typical uh, day 
for me. Are you a little bit different then? Are you in that kind of problem solving aspect? Do you operate a little bit differently to your kind of classic dev shop, would you say? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think we really, uh, we do our best work as an organization where clients have uh, important problems that they really need to solve and where they don't just want to kind of get 10 engineers uh, to come and sit in a room and write code. So we're, we're much more outcomes based. So we okay. take a hard business problem and then we kind of really own the outcome of actually fixing the business problem and not just kind of cutting code for a day rate. Gotcha. Nice. And and I, did, I mentioned a little bit before, obviously, so we've worked together a few times. Um, you you t- tend to find yourself all the way back to tax again. You can't escape. Um, <laughs> I found exactly the same, to be fair. I did um, I did a lot of tax technology for a while. I then went and did uh, three or four years of regulatory technology, which which is, you know, adjacent, I suppose, but um, at least was in very much in the banking sector rather than necessarily pure tax. And uh, then the next job, well, immediately back to tax and then spent some time in VAT and now corporation tax. So um, you, like me, seem to have found your way back in. How does that keep happening? I mean, you can't escape tax environments in the end. It, it is ultimately everywhere. Um, but I think a part of it is that actually um, I talked earlier about trying to find difficult and interesting problems for my teams because, you know, that's really what engages them and gets them out of bed. And actually, though it's deeply uncool to say so, tax is actually really interesting. And there are lots of really interesting nuances. It's a really interesting kind of business domain to learn about. And actually, all of that deep finance, we've done some really interesting problems in the actuarial space where, you know, the teams have found it fascinating to learn about how actuaries work and how they predict when you're going to die and that sort of thing. Mm. Um, But there's so much complexity under the hood. And it's those kind of difficult, complex problems like, uh, you know, all over the place in tax technology that actually my teams get really into. And, you know, they enjoy geeking out about the business domain mm. and we'll talk a bit more about the you know the alpha map project we'll talk about that shortly but it's um it is always interesting because you know when we started the main project that we've been working with you guys on you almost feel sort of duty bound in the introduction to be like i'm really sorry guys you're working in tax no one wants to work in tax boo it's boring but actually as you say um as soon as you actually get into the problems they are fascinating and they are different and actually it's not just about kind of sitting in a room and, and solving problems that you've kind of solved before and just kind of um, doing that it's actually okay well yes you might have seen similar themes or similar-ish problems but actually the fact that it's in tax and finance um, and some of the weird and wonderful nuances of the world that we work in um, actually means that the team have really got stuck in and, and they've actually learned a bit about it on the way as well which has always been nice to see um, some of your uh, bright minds that are relatively fresh out of university going, oh, I'd never knew that about that. And now you kind of go, well, you're, you're still an excellent software engineer, but you know a small bit about tax as well, which will Absolutely. stand them in good stead. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess moving on then to the, to the work we've been doing together. So we, we're talking about Alpha Map. This um, the, the product is is launching um, uh, uh, next week as we record this. So it by is. the time it goes out, it will have indeed launched, um, which is great news. So okay, talk me through how that's come about um, in, in terms of us working on that together. I mean, as with all great ideas in the world of business, it started with a conversation in a uh, in a slightly unsalubrious pub near <laughs> near Waterloo yep. Station. Um, but it came at a really interesting time, actually, that we just happened to be having a catch-up because mm. I think it was just after OpenAI had launched uh, GPT-3.5, which mm-hmm. is one of the first uh, versions that they released that really started to blow people's minds. And I think we've been aware for a couple of years that uh, generative AI as a technology is going to disrupt both our industry, but also most of our clients as well. And we were really starting to do some kind of heavy duty thinking about, well, what do we need to do to respond to this? Mm -hmm. Um, And it turned out when we met up that you had been doing some really similar thinking internally within tax systems and thinking about actually where in your value chain is this going to have an impact? 
And it was actually really fascinating taking the somewhat abstract thinking I'd been doing and comparing it to the notes that you'd come up with around actually, you know, a few dozen use cases where it could really impact your clients' workflows and just sort of seeing the mapping between those. Mm. So I think it kind of evolved quite naturally from that conversation of, well, here's where it could disrupt into, well, great, and how do we test that? Yeah, and that was that was it. We, um, you know, just before we met, we, me and um, a couple of guys in the office had sat down for a day with a whiteboard and start at the very left of a of a tax process and finish at the very right of a tax process. So all the way from the very first things you do, putting data out of systems, all the way through to filing to HMRC, and kind of sat down and went, okay, well, where where could this stuff play? Um, and and then took that and and ranked some ideas and thought, you know, it's always lovely to have these, you know, grand ideas. Okay, we're just going to build a a bot that is going to go and and everyone's going to get all their tax advice. I've seen just this week, in fact, PwC have announced that they've, they're launching a bot internally um, that, that will try and do exactly that. And it'll be really interesting to see how that works. But that's clearly a a much bigger use case that will take an awful lot of time to work through and solve. And no doubt that is the first pass of something that will continue to roll over the coming years. But we took a look at that and went, okay, where, where are the, the client pain problems where this might make a big bit of difference? Um, and settled on, I think, three that we worked on. Um, but we spun that up pretty quickly. I remember having the conversation with, um, with Bruce, the CEO, and being like, look, we've just got to do this. We've got to do some research. Um, and actually, I think many people would be surprised as to how quickly we kind of got that up and running in terms of just researching the concept, not only from a, you know, getting... Uh, I was going to say bums on seats, specifically a bum on seat. He's a guy called Ant, who's very lovely and very smart. Yep. Um, getting him on a seat to to really go through these problems. But I mean, we were talking. We did we did that work in what eight weeks? I think eight weeks end to end, and you know, we're getting interim results that were really starting to prove the concept within a few days, almost of starting. Mm, exactly, and and then we kind of fed them back and have gone through, and we'll talk a bit more about the product um, in a little bit. But I, I guess broadening out really from specifically from AlphaMap just for a second is. Are you seeing this kind of happening with other customers, other industries, other um, other bits and bobs of people kind of asking you for the same sorts of things? How's that working specific to Gen AI? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, a lot of people are talking about it. What we're observing at the moment in the market is that a lot of people are trapped in that, that headspace of it's a slightly better chatbot than can go and read some mm. documents. And lots of people want it for internal knowledge-based access. They yep. want it for kind of summarization tasks. They want it for transcription tasks. Um, and lots of people are doing like what PwC mentioned, where you're finding a really large corpus of knowledge and using it for better access to that. But that's kind of where the thinking seems to stop in a lot yep. of cases. And um, I think actually uh, the tax systems work has been a very different flavor of use case from what most of our clients are asking for and i think what you guys have really successfully done when you found the um you know the alpha map scope is you found some areas where actually it's not just sort of summarizing text it's actually replacing human judgment mm. and that kind of that tax preparation process of working out well given given a particular narrative that's come out of an accounting system where does that map to in a trial balance that's actually really quite a fine sort of piece of judgment that somebody has to have context they have to have knowledge and expertise and i think you quite successfully identified that actually that's a really specific and very deep tax technical thing that actually is quite readily achievable with gen ai yeah and that's why i suppose we did the research because we didn't know right we could have we could have thrown it in and it could have been 
you know, 30, 40% accurate. And indeed, in the very first pass, I think it was something like 58, 59% accurate. We looked at him and went, okay, it's it's, it's all right, um, but it's certainly not good enough from, from the point of view of building something. But then, you know, it was about them refining and how do we, you know, some of that is prompt engineering, some of that's approach and strategy, some of it's fine tuning and training um, and, and you know, few shot messaging and all sorts of different, different wonderful stuff. We've mm. dived into some really weird, wonderful uh, kind of holes with uh, with Ant over the the coming uh, the, the past few months, but um, to to get that up has probably been a really interesting. Set. And I think you're right. It's you know, yes, it can absolutely do those kind of jobs where you're looking at a corpus and, and trying to then kind of summarise. And, and I've seen use cases. Another use case I saw was one of the one of the other big accountancy firms has basically put all of their internal policies on an internal chatbot. So if you want to ask about your holiday allowance or your uh, sick leave or any of these things, you don't have to go and trawl through hundreds of pages of policy documents. You just simply pop up a, a, a chatbot and ask it and it gives you a good answer. Um, so there are loads of use cases like that. Don't get me wrong, they're, they're, they're very valid. But um, I do think we, we try to think about it a little bit differently, which is nice. So... Are you getting more more variants? Um, do you think over the next few months, in terms of the the kind of projects and, and challenges you're seeing, or uh, where yeah, is it going? It's an interesting question. So I think more people are starting to see beyond the chatbot as uh, options. We've we've been speaking uh, recently to a client who's uh, looking to effectively develop an AI focus group, mm-hmm. and so there's a really interesting question of if you get a variety of different models and train them on a variety of different corpuses of conversational data and Mm -hmm. preference data, can you actually start to produce a demographically representative sort of sample of chatbots? So imagine you have a thousand (laughs) chatbots uh, covering a kind of demographically representative section of the population, and you start to throw slogans or ideas, or actually uh, the interesting one they're looking at is phrasing. So if you're worried about how, um, how something is phrased, and is it comprehensible? Does mm. it evoke a particular reaction? Can you actually use, uh, you know, a thousand differently trained AIs to give you a proportionately representative sample of what the population would make of that? Mm. Interesting. That sounds like a really fun challenge. My brain's going off on a totally random tangent at the moment, as it normally would with these things. It almost feels like you're building a chatbot of chatbots, some sort of master chatbot to take all, take, take over the world. And it is exactly that. It's kind of your your demographic chatbot. It's like, great, what, does, what is the general public going to make of this particular idea? And um, we don't know, but it's, it'll be a really interesting kind of concept to test. Mm. Yeah, and it was and, and it, one of the things that is, is relevant to our work that, that that makes me think of is that, and it's one of the early things that when we started going through sort of prompt engineering and how do you make this, some of this stuff better? It was surprising to see just how much, and this is maybe giving, giving away a bit of a secret, but I think it's totally relevant. If you put, I am a corporation tax expert into the prompt, it suddenly goes, oh, hang on, well, you know, rather than just doing what I was asked, I'm, I'm now really good at corporation tax, so I'll, I'll actually improve the results. Um, so every time I'm writing a prompt for anything these days, um, you know, I'm always kind of going, okay, well, I want to, you know, I want to play around and, and have an assessment of, you know, we, we've been looking, for example, a little bit at fixed assets. Okay, well, I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to tell it is I've been, classifying fixed assets for many years and I'm an excellent professional and and it, you'd be surprised at just how much that boost results which is also just baffling to me. It's it's really fascinating and we found the same in some preliminary tests with age data so if you say you know I'm a 74 year old woman you get very different outputs from saying I'm a 16 year old boy mm. um, and it's it's fascinating this, this, this comes back to the question of training and bias and it's very apparent that uh, large language models have picked 
picked up mm. a load of stereotypes. Yeah. They have stereotypical attitudes and behaviours that are encoded in the models. And um, it's a really interesting uh, alignment question for the people making these models of actually how do you avoid negative stereotypes or unfair stereotypes in mm. those. But yes, they're, they're clearly there and you can experiment with that through setting the system prompt. Yeah, and the, uh, also I'm sure you saw a couple of weeks ago the... Um, uh, GPT-4 was getting lazy and I'd actually noticed it getting a bit lazy you know you'd ask it to uh, uh, you know I might for example feed in 20 or 30 categories and say okay there's the, here are these 30 lines and I want you to give me an answer and it would just start going okay well I'm going to give you the top 10 and just oh that's cool here's the top 10 and if you want any more let me know and then you have to ask it again it's like I'll give you another 10 it's just like I just asked you for 30 just do 30 so they've actually had to um you know I don't know how it works behind the scenes of course but they've actually had to um, change it so that it becomes less lazy which to me is again it's fascinating that these models can actually become lazier over time yeah, it's it's interesting how they're evolving this. And I think some of that is the uh, that feedback loop they've put in where you grade the answers. And mm. some of that is them trying to demand level. I think that example is one where actually they've realised people are asking for 30 examples and only look at the first 10. And actually mm. it costs them computing power to, to give the extra 20, so they've dropped it back. But the other one I've noticed over the last couple of months in particular is that uh, it will refuse a lot more requests and mm. say, oh, no, actually, I'm only an AI model. I don't have any expertise in that space. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the questions about how you productionize these systems is what happens if your AI goes on strike? Yeah. And, and it does happen. It will turn around and say, well, actually, I'm not a tax technology expert. I don't feel qualified to answer that. Mm. And that probably feeds quite nicely back into just um, finishing off the conversation around AlphaMap because we've, you know, it, 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 wouldn't it just be lovely if you could write a prompt, track stuff in, get stuff out and all the rest of it? But we've had to go through an awful lot of hoops in terms of working through, you know, fail and retries. You know, for example, we, we are using um, the OpenAI technology, albeit Microsoft's um, version, so it's all housed within Azure and all secure and all the rest of it. But um, sometimes, you know, if you ask it something, it will just go, no, I'm not doing that. So we have to then obviously retry and, and, and put things through. And actually the, what that means is that behind the scenes, there is an awful lot of stuff going on, yet to the user it just looks like, oh, I've just popped off a request and here comes some answers, um, which is, again, quite a nice part of this. It's not necessarily just the generative AI power that's behind the scenes, but actually how do you present it to a user? Um, which is something you guys have worked through. So just talk to me a bit more about how that uh, the kind of production project, you know, we did we did eight weeks of research, we went away and went, that's, that's really good. And then in uh, November, we uh, started a full-scale kind of production-level build, which is what we'll be releasing uh, shortly. So give us a bit more information about that. Yeah, absolutely. So we've productionized these technologies with a few different clients now, and every time we work through taking it to production, we learn more about the different things you need to make it successful. Um, and I think with tax systems in particular, what we've really learned is how important um, the design of the user experience is mm. in uh, overcoming limitations with what OpenAI's technology can currently do. So one of the things we found is that um, is that ChatGPT ultimately does take a while to come back. And uh, there's a fine balance between... Um, if you batch your results up, it saves you cost in the long term, but it also takes longer to process a batch. Yeah. And so what we've had to do is look into, for example, sending the first few requests as individual items to display to the user for review, and then to gradually increase the batch size for efficiency as, you know, so what, what that means is we're quickly returning some results mm. to the user, which makes it feel snappy, but then we're doing the, the, the rest in larger chunks, which is more efficient um, overall. So things like that are really important. Mm. Um, 
but there's also a lot behind the scenes so you mentioned that kind of fail and retry and actually quite often you do get api errors back because uh, either they're too busy or you've hit a quota limit or things like that um for other clients what we've looked at doing is actually having a pool of apis that we can access mm. so we'll get multiple different api okay. keys multiple different accounts and we'll have to write some logic behind the scenes to effectively load balance between those mm. so that we can cope with kind of big peaks yeah um, but also that failure detection, um, building in enough observability into the way that you access uh, these these yeah. AIs is really important because you want to detect if your error rate increases over time. Because yep. it might be that, you know, the machine is coming back and saying no to a request. Uh, it might be that, you know, more things are failing uh, because particular types of queries unexpectedly confuse the AI. So building in sort of those sorts of patterns at a very foundational level, but also building in the tooling to observe what is happening mm. is really, really important. And it's easy to overlook that and suddenly find that actually it's not working for a subset of your users. Yeah, and I think that's that's the thing is there's a lot that um, we've had to go through to make sure that the, that the product is out and will work properly, um, albeit there's still loads of unknowns and things that um, we just need to monitor and make sure that we're we're watching on a continual basis. Because as you say, it's you know, it's still relatively new, particularly to production processes. Um, there's obviously, you know, anyone can go and log on to ChatGPT and if you want, put $20 a month in the meter and play with the Plus model and play with GPT-4. But, um, you know, getting actually, you know, from that, which is, you know, nice and, and fun and interesting and can, you know, help with the day job. I'm I'm definitely one of the people, as I'm sure you are, that uses this stuff on a pretty much daily basis just to make my life um, easier um, and more efficient from a work point of view. But actually turning that into a product is, is probably a bit of a different task um so i think i think moving a little bit on from uh, generative ai um at the risk of this becoming the generative ai podcast of which i'm sure there are many um what what else are you seeing in the in the market in your market um i guess with a sort of 2024 lens what else is is big um, and in vogue and, and, and on topic right now that you're seeing? I mean, it's it's interesting. I think I think Gen AI has almost stolen everything else's thunder. So there's still, there's still the kind of continual migration towards the cloud. There's still a lot of focus actually on sort of improved customer experience as a differentiator. And that's, that's one we're getting quite a lot of requests for. I think more businesses, as they become fully digital, are really worried that their customers are going to leave them if they have a bad time online. Um, mm. And you see this particularly in the insurance and financial services sectors where you know insurers want you to have a great time uh, whenever you have a touch point with them um, so that remains a kind of general concern but actually more and more companies are looking to solve that concern with chain ai and it's a question of actually how do you write a really high quality conversational interface that lets people interact in novel ways with your company yeah and i'm sure i'm sure everybody has seen or certainly you will have seen and a lot of people have seen the um the uh, the DPD chatbot that they put that yes. they put out there, which was uh, maybe they could have done a little bit more to train it, shall I say? Because you could um, you could ask it to write you a haiku on uh, how bad DPD was as a customer <laughs> delivery service. You could ask it to swear for you, um, and 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 maybe. Those aren't the experiences you necessarily want. Well, that is true. And they, they do go viral. They generate some yes. publicity for a business, but they're not necessarily the right sorts of publicity. And yes. I mean, actually, those sorts of guardrails around AIs, particularly anything open to the general public, is another mm. one of those uh, evolving areas that we're working quite hard on. Actually, how do you prevent prompt injection? How do you actually prevent it saying something that's going to embarrass the company? And yep. there are various different approaches to take uh, on those sorts of things. But uh, yeah, it's, it's as yet another 
not a solved problem. And, you know, in the same category as hallucinations where AIs will still make things up sometimes if they think it's what you want to hear. And, uh, you know, I still think we're in a situation where Gen AI is best as a co-pilot where there is a human in the loop. And I think that's part of the reason that your use cases work so well for AlphaMap. Mm. Yeah, and I think and and the co-pilot points a good one where we're actually rolling it out um, in our business over the, the next couple of weeks. I'm one of the pilot users, as you would imagine, so I'm going to be hammering a Microsoft Copilot and, and seeing what. And I think there's been, you know, it's, there's been a positive reception, but it's not necessarily, and specifically to Microsoft Copilot, has not necessarily been the, the, the blow away that everyone's gone, oh my God, that's amazing. I think what I've seen is that um, people are saying it's very good in certain instances. I think the teams and the meetings and the note taking and the sentiment analysis, some of that stuff is really good. Um, certainly people who have looked at it for, say, Excel are less positive on on just how much it might boost efficiency. So I think um it's early days in in that space um it'll be really interesting to see where it goes clearly microsoft have, have bet the farm on it so it's not going to um to fall over i wouldn't have thought but um it certainly isn't as you say a solved problem just yet yes it hasn't i think it will be a few years before it gets to the point where it's really good and natural enough that it will sort of hit that tipping point and everyone will start using it yeah um and on to i guess final question um for the day although i could sit here and talk about this stuff for hours um what would be your kind of one piece of advice to our customers what would you say about um well gen ai or anything what would you kind of counsel them to consider yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think a lot of people don't quite appreciate the full breadth of use cases for Gen AI and also how quickly um, the industry is moving. Mm. And almost every day there's a major announcement uh, of you know some quite startling new capabilities. So this morning's was OpenAI uh, releasing their text-to-video model, oh, yeah, which is it's absolutely unbelievable, mm. um, the quality of what you can produce um, as a video clip from a really simple text prompt. And so that, that technology... If you'd asked me a year ago how long that would take, I'd have said, oh, it's five to ten years away before you'll get convincing videos. Mm. And so this is moving really, really quickly as an industry. And it is going to disrupt your business or your supply chains in ways that you don't foresee. And I guess what I'd say is keep having conversations, go and talk to people about it, Um, make sure that where you've got advisors or suppliers that you're working with, talk to them about what they're doing with it and just try and sort of understand where it is impacting the industry. And I guess the the second half of that is um, it is surprisingly quick and cheap to actually spin up a pilot to say, great, could it disrupt this area of my business? And within a few weeks, you can get a really good idea of, you know, is it going to disrupt my business this year? Is it still a few years off potentially? Mm. Or actually, is this an area where it's probably not a fit? But really be vigilant for what those areas might be and don't be afraid to try them out. Yeah, and, and that's, um, I think that, that that kind of sparks two thoughts in my brain. Firstly, you're right that not everything is a hit. We um, we have now done, we're on our fifth use case um, of research with you guys. Two of them have turned into AlphaMap. Um, one of them has, has turned into some interesting research around the world of RxBRL that I definitely won't delve into, but there's some interesting thoughts and, and theories around that one. Um, but one of them, actually, we looked at um, taking sort of messy data and, and data formats, you know, when you get ERP data out, and could we use it to kind of structure it in a better way? And actually, the assessment at the time when we did this all the way, I think back in May last year, which feels like a lifetime ago in the world of Gen AI, um, was that it's not really the right technology for that for a number of reasons, for things like security, for data size and things like that now. Um it, it's definitely not the right technology for it now, but that doesn't mean that it's not the right technology for it in a year or two years. And as you say, the, the, it might have been in, in my head five or ten years away, but actually maybe it is a year away. But actually one of the related points to that... Um, in the process of productionizing these tools, um, 
some of our tech people have coined uh, a, a law that they call uh, the law of minimum use, which mm. uh, which states that um, Gen AI is at its most effective when you use it as little as possible. Mm. And it's really tempting to take big, hairy problems like, you know, uh, taking some unstructured data and trying to interpret it and to hold, hand the whole thing off to an AI and say, just figure it out. Yeah. But actually what we find is if you can do some or most of the task using kind of traditional software engineering Mm. approaches and then just use AI for that tiny little bit at the end where you're, say, mapping column headings or something like that, the overall result is generally better. So while it is huge and powerful... Yeah. Don't try and use it for everything. Yeah, and I think that's right. And if, you know, actually, now you're getting me thinking about how we can go relook at this. But ultimately, yeah, you're saying, okay, I want you to find out where in the file this data is, but then you're not asking it to actually get the data and put it into the columns and do the things because that can be done in a much simpler type Python type way. And I think we see the same thing in tax and the, the the sticky question of maths. You know, tax involves doing lots of maths, and maths has to be 100% right. And large language models are not the right place to be doing maths. But if you can get the large language model to understand well, this is the, these are the things that I need to know about and calculate and then hand them off to a calculator that is good at maths, then uh, that's a much better approach. Exactly. Cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. Again, as I say, I could um, I could have sat here and talked about this for hours um, and it would make uh, the editing job particularly tricky if we did. So uh, thank you very much for your time, John, and uh, really appreciate it. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much.